Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We have these words that we throw around. I'm going to throw three words out to you. And I just want you to think about the implications that you hear when you think of these words. So we have the word friends, acquaintances, and partners. All of these words come kind of preloaded with ideas, notions. They're pre-packed with some sense of what they mean. And for us today, when we talk about friends, we have different categories of friendship, don't we? We have Facebook friends, which means that you might know somebody who knows this person and therefore you're friends with them on Facebook. We have real friends. A friend is someone that, that we have a close relationship with. An acquaintance is somebody that we've met, that we know of, that we might work with or live near or, or whatever else. A, a partner has a certain connotation to it as well, sometimes positive and negative. See, the confusion around these words highlight our relational confusion. It was just a couple years ago that Jody and I, uh, we met a a neighbor, a friend of ours that uh, had lived in a certain place for 40 years and was unfamiliar with those who lived around them. And this is telling because this is actually a cultural issue. We see that American neighbors don't know one another anymore. And, and truthfully, it's strange to be invited over to someone else's house for a meal or for coffee or whatever else. We are more isolated, more divided, more separated than we've ever been as a culture, seemingly. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you a friend? Are you a good friend to, in Christ to those that you interact with here? Are you a partner to others in the gospel and the work of the gospel, God's kingdom work that he wants to establish? See, as we turn to the opening of Philippians this morning, Paul writes a letter to the Philippians that is founded upon the deepest of commonalities, mutual hope in the return of Jesus Christ. And what we're reminded of this morning as we turn to Philippians chapter 1 is that truly our fellowship is founded upon Jesus' work at Calvary. That if we have to have these true things called partners or friends, as Paul uses these terms, it's to be established together in the work of the cross as we commonly value the work of Jesus. See, here's our big idea this morning, is that gospel partnerships invite us to see the grace of God anew. The gospel partnerships, friendships rooted in our commonality in Christ, what they do is they invite us into gospel reflection time and time again, that we would think about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus as our friends bring those things to mind and apply them to our lives. This is what we're talking about with gospel partnerships. We're not just talking about casual relationships that center around sports teams or the weather or whatever else. We're talking about deep-seated commonality in Christ and the fellowship that comes out of those things. So here's our outline. In verses 1 through 2, we're going to see Paul's greeting to the Philippians. And then in verses 3 through 8, we're going to see Paul's thankful prayer for those Philippians as he gives thanks for these people 
And then in verses 9 through 11, we're going to see Paul's prayerful petition for the Philippians. There's a lot of Ps. I feel very Baptist this morning. And we want to dive in into Philippians chapter 1, and let me read with you from verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you. And peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Peter once, or Paul, I'm going to say Peter all the time now because we just concluded Peter last week. Paul is going to answer a few questions for us in these early verses, right? He's going to tell us who's writing, who's receiving this letter. He's going to talk to us about what the greeting is that he gives there in verse 2. And so the first thing he addresses in verse 1 is he tells us who's writing, that this letter is co-authored, which makes it somewhat unique, right? Paul and Timothy. And later in chapter 2, what we'll see is that Timothy was actually sent as an emissary. He's one who's carrying this letter along with Epaphroditus, and he's coming back to Philippi to be a physical presence, a a physical manifestation of what this letter wants to embody. And he says there in Paul, of all the things that he could say, all of his his, uh, resume that he could put forward, what he says is that he and Timothy are servants of Jesus Christ. In fact, the word there is actually doulos. It's the word for slave. That Peter or Paul, what he wants to set in front of these people at Philippi is not what he's done for the Lord, not his long resume. He wants to say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Me and Timothy, we serve Jesus. That's what we do. And so Paul, right off the bat, starts off with this uh, sanctified humility. Second question we ask is not just who's writing, but who's receiving. And Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. See, Paul has a history with these Philippian believers. It's in Acts 16 that we see the story of the start of the church at Philippi. In Acts 16, we see it starts off with... uh, Paul and his entourage go to this place of prayer along this riverbank, and they start to preach the gospel to those who are there. And that's where they see the conv- conversion of a, of a woman named Lydia, who's a kind of a, a wealthy uh, proprietor, right? She's the one who starts sell- selling purple cloth. And so Lydia is converted. She's baptized, and she invites these missionaries to stay in her house. And the next step we see in Acts 16 is that Paul is going around preaching the gospel, but he's got this uh, tag along. A demon-possessed slave girl is following them around, and she's constantly saying this in Acts 16. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It doesn't seem like a bad message. It's just it's hard to talk to somebody when someone's screaming it at the top of their lungs. And so Paul gets... I want to think it's annoyed because then it sanctifies what I do all the time, right? He gets kind of frustrated and he turns around and he rebukes this girl and the demon comes out of her. And and when Paul drives out this demon, her owners become upset because that was a source of income for them. They they would use this girl for uh, kind of fortune telling. And of course, what happens then is they drag Paul and Silas, they drag them to the middle of the city. Uh, They say that they are accused of advocating unlawful customs Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into prison. While they're in prison, Paul and Silas are up all night singing hymns to the Lord. An earthquake opens, 
every jail cell, the bonds fall off of every prisoner, and Paul and Silas are about to break free when they see the jailer about to fall upon his own sword and take his own life. And Paul starts out, shouts out and says, stop, don't do this. And all of the people stay in their jail cells, and the jailer actually comes to know Christ, and he and his household are baptized. The next day, the Philippians realize, these Philippians uh, officials realize that they've beaten a Roman citizen. And Paul, that's not something you're supposed to do. So what they want to do is they want to exit Paul out of the city quietly. They want him to just kind of go away. They want to bury this scandal that's happened. And Paul looks at them and says, no, I want an entourage to take me out. And so Paul is led out of the city of Philippi by a military escort, as it were. See, these are the happenings at this church in Philippi. There's lots of controversy. There's lots of kind of uh, dynamics that are happening. These Philippians know how the gospel brings kind of uh, drama into their midst. But they also know the saving power of the gospel. So Paul writes to all believers, that's what he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. But notice he also has another subset of believers he wants to write to. He says, to the overseers and to the deacons. Why does this happen? Well, he probably wants them to kind of read this letter publicly. So he's addressing it to them in hopes that they might actually oversee the the public reading of this book. And finally, in verse 2, he kind of gives this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a pretty common greeting for Paul. In fact, if you've read any of his other letters, you realize it's, it's pretty familiar. And what happens is it's just really easy for us to read this and just kind of gloss over it. But we must remember that, that this greeting is anything but thoughtless on Paul's part. See, what you would do is if you sat down to write a letter in the first century in, in kind of Greek cultures, you would use the word kerain. It means greetings. And you would kind of say, greetings from uh, Paul or whoever else, right? Well, Paul kind of twists it a little bit. And rather than saying kerain, he says charis. And he says grace to you. And so he twists this introduction to kind of emphasize the grace and peace that we have through Jesus Christ from God the Father. See, Paul's emphasizing that we have commonality as recipients of mercy from God as those who've been given grace and kindness from him. See, Christians are those who hold a common hope. Christians partner together as those with a common hope. See, true fellowship comes from our commonality in Christ. John says this in 1 John chapter 1. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. John's writing as an apostle, and he's saying, you recipients of this letter, you have, you have true fellowship, true koinonia with us. How? He says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, this morning, there are black churches and white churches and Hispanic churches. There are uh, high-income churches and low-income churches. There are a variety of churches that are gathering together today, but any church that doesn't gather around the person of Christ is simply another Elks Club or another social meeting of some type. See, all Christian gatherings must somehow move beyond the trivialities to the substance of our faith. We can talk about the weather or work or sports, but what makes the church the church is the atonement made by Jesus Christ and our common hope that we hold together in it. So that Christian hope, Christian people, 
should speak of Christ and push others to think and hope in Christ. Paul has more to say. He didn't just write this letter to the Philippians and say, hey, how you doing? He has an intention. He has a purpose for writing this. And he's going to start to unveil some of that purpose in verses 3 through 11. And specifically in verses 3 through 8, he's going to give us a sense of his thankfulness for these Philippians in verses 3 through 8. Look with me there in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus." You can sense just even as we read these words that Paul just drips with love for these Philippian believers. That maybe differently than he's written to the Corinthians or the Galatians where he's so strongly stated to those individual groups here in Philippians. He has a direction for them, but he also has deep love and passion for these people. He starts off in verses 3 through 6 and he says that he's thankful for the Philippians' participation in the gospel. And so Paul says he's thankful for these Philippians so much that every time he prays for them, he, he's thankful for them. As Paul prays for these Philippian believers, he's smiling. He describes that prayer for the Philippian believers as a source of joy for him. And we might stop and ask ourselves, is that, tone of our li- is that the tone of our lives in prayer that, that we joyfully pray for others? Or do we begrudgingly do so? Do we pray with joy? Do we pray with with delight and and, uh, joy at the works of the gospel in other people around us or or in ourselves? We might stop and think about why does Paul pray with joy? And he invites us into that in verse 5. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's thankful for their partnership, for their koinonia. That, That word describes what we might typically say is fellowship. These Philippians are in it with Paul. They are with him through thick and thin. And their partnership gives Paul assurance of their continuance in the faith. Look at verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Not only were they with him at the beginning, they're going to continue and they're going to be finalized in Christ. See, the good work that God has started in these believers would come to completion. So Paul looks at these Philippians and says, if they've gone through this with me, if they've gone through the slave girl incident, if they've gone through the the jail uh, escape incident, they're with me. And they're with Christ. And Christ will complete what he started. See, there was no shortage of difficulty in Philippi, but also no shortage of Gospel-rich growth in Christ. So Paul turns gears here a little bit in verse 7 and 8, and he's given this, this 
massive statement. I'm confident that what God started in you, he's going to bring to completion. He's going to give us the the foundation of such a statement in verses 7 through 8. How does Paul know that that's the case for these Philippian believers? See, the evidence for Paul's confidence is given to us in verse 7 and 8. Look there with me again. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, the first line of evidence in Paul's heart and mind of why he's so assured that these Philippians will be perfected in Christ is his own love for them. Isn't that what he says? Verse 7, for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in imprisonment Oh, excuse me, the subjective in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And he comes back to the same idea in verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul's confidence in the Philippians lies in his love for the Philippians. That he has a genuine affection and delight in these people. But in verse 8, he also presses into another matter in verse 7, excuse me. He says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, Paul's confidence in the Philippians comes down to their history in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That they've stood beside Paul in the confidence of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul is sure that God will finish what he started. Many of you know I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, Okay which leads to its own sense of suffering. We had years, two years, where we won one game in amidst 32 different games, right? Two years, one win. If your team only won a single game out of 32 and you still stuck with them, you're a true fan. Like nobody can take that from you, right? Paul is saying that those who stand up for Christ in in the midst of difficulty are those who will come to the end, that they've faced the difficult times with Paul. They've stood beside him when he's been persecuted, and they stayed true to the gospel. Therefore, they'll finish strong as well. See, not only do Christians partner together in their confirmation of their common hope, Christians partner together in the midst of common difficulties. Christians aren't simply partners in our hope together. We're partners in the midst of our trials and temptations and frustrations and everything that we face. See, you and I, we all face a world that is naturally opposed to the hope of the gospel that we claim. And Paul tells us that uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing And you and I, every time we leave this building, we go out into a world of neighbors and family members and co-workers that see our most foundational truths as foolishness, as folly, as stupidity. And so what this place becomes then is a refuge for world-weary Christians. See, this place, this church, Gospel Community Church, and many other churches throughout the area are meant to be life-giving to believers in Jesus Christ. Believers who have grown weary through interactions with the world should find their church to be a place of renewal and strengthening. Hebrews tells us that we should exhort one another as we see the day approaching. He, He tells us that we should stir up one another to good deeds. But too often, church 
relationships become taxing rather than life-giving. When our focus is on something other than our commonality in Christ, we become focused on the wrong things. Too many times I've heard pastors talk about uh, the fights that happen in their congregation over pews and carpet. That's why we have neither here. See, when we become focused on other things, we tend to stress and we become anxious. And when we're anxious, we tend to take from others rather than give. And as sinners become focused on earthly things, they they tend to become a, a draw on the health and vitality of others. You ever run into somebody that's a relational negative? I myself will find seasons in my life where I need the body of Christ. And what we need then is we need gospel-rich Christians who can be self-giving like Christ himself was, who can give of themselves and their energy and their emotion, and they can give of their time, and they can meet others in their need. But when we all become relational negatives, gospel-needy people without any gospel to go around, we enter into a negative cycle with one another, don't we? See, one of the things we're concerned about here is is establishing what we would call a gospel culture, a culture of people who who rely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ for sustenance, who then are relationally available to give to one another, and they give in grace, and they meet people who are needy, and they give and give because Christ has given to them. See, what Paul says here is his thankfulness for a group of people who are partners in the gospel. And I want to turn, he turns our attention then to how he prays for these partners in the gospel. Verses 9 through 11, he unpacks his prayerful petition for these Philippians. Look with me in verse 9. Is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I love this letter from Paul. I remember opening this letter for the first time and just kind of reading through it a number of days in a row. And then the theme started to jump off the page. And I'm excited to preach through it to invite us as a, as a church to the themes that Paul presents to us here. And I wonder this morning if it might encourage you, if I might encourage you to incorporate this prayer into your own prayer life. This prayer, if Paul, recorded as a part of the Scripture, shares God's heart for us. Thus, when we pray this prayer, we pray it with confidence that ourselves, that we ourselves can take on the character of Christ, that we can pray this for our children, that we can pray this for our friends, that we can pray this for others in the body, we can pray it for our elders. Let's kind of dive in. Look at how Paul prays. The first thing he asks is that we have abounding love. That's what he says in verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Do you realize that, Christian, this morning, that you don't ever reach a, a height of love, that you just don't need anymore? That there's always room for growth in love. 
See, Paul prays, prays for these Philippians that they might have a growing emotional affection for others, that they might increase in their love for one another, that we're never going to hit our head on the ceiling of love, that a God who is defined by love never meets the ceiling of his love for us. It's always overflowing, and thus, therefore, as Christians, we can abound in love for one another. And Paul prays this for this Philippian believers. Now, later on in the letter, he's going to turn. He's going to say, I plead with you, Yodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche, to agree together with the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, he says that no one should consider themselves more important than another. So he starts this idea right now that we abound in love. Love helps us overlook our differences, doesn't it? It looks beyond the difficulties of, of a person and it sees the image of God, the potential for Christ to be honored and glorified. So Paul prays that they would abound more and more with love. And secondly, the thing he prays is that they would have knowledge and discernment. He prays that they might have discernment, which is kind of rooted in this idea of knowledge, the idea that they could apply the knowledge that they know to their world and context. You ever know somebody who knows everything but has zero discernment? They have a head full of facts, but no wisdom. Think about the potency of these two things, the love and discernment brought together when we're loving, when we're knowledgeable, when we're discerning. That is a potent mixture for the, co- for the cause of the gospel in the world, isn't it? That you and I would be motivated by love and knowledgeable to discern. I'm going to date myself here. When I was in High school in the 90s, there was a show called Tool Time or something like that with a guy named Tim Taylor, right? It was, uh, what's the actor's name? Yeah, whatever, I don't know. Um, Tim Taylor, would, he would mess something up through the whole show, and then he would go and talk to his neighbor, Wilson. And his Wilson was both loving and knowledgeable. Well, kind of. A lot of it was Eastern mysticism and other things, but just ignore that. He always knew the right thing to say, and he loved him enough to gently correct him. I wonder if we as Christians might put on love, might put on knowledge and discernment. See, what Paul does next, he shows the results of these things. He says it in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. See, the end of that knowledge and love mixed together would be the approval of excellent things so that you might approve good, pure behaviors. Later in chapter 4, Paul's going to tell us that we should approve or we should set our mind on anything that's excellent. We should think upon those things. The word carries the connotation of surpassing other things. That is, we are to approve what's the better behaviors that God calls us to in the New Testament. See, when we're more loving and more knowledgeable, we should put on a purity of character. We should approve the excellent behaviors that, that God has called us to in Christ. 
He says later on there, he says that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that at day, the day of Jesus' return, we would be pure and blameless. And then in verse 11, he says that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He, he's saying that we should approve the excellent things so that we could put on purity, put on blamelessness, be found fruitful at the return of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he says that all of these things culminate to the glory and praise of God. He said last week that we could describe God's glory as the splendor of His presence. But it might also act for the shorthand of of God's fame and renown. See, here's the culmination of all of this, is that as we increase in love and knowledge and discernment, as we approve what's excellent, as we uh, put on purity and blamelessness and fruitfulness for the day of Christ's return, what happens is that we show forth the fame and renown of the Father who's taken the lump of sinful coal that I am, and He's pressed it, and formed it into the diamond of a saint in Jesus Christ. So this is a powerful prayer for us, isn't it? Prayer we can put on for others. Prayer we can pray over those that we love. Paul is praying over these Philippian believers that he obviously has great affection for. And his partners in the gospel. And what's so crazy to me is that in verse 6, he told us that he was so sure that God would complete what he started, but then he prays that God would complete what he started. Isn't that a fascinating interaction? Paul's confident that it will happen, but he prays that it will still all the same. See, as we look at this passage, I want to just kind of recap and pull out what what exactly Paul is talking about. Let's just take a brief inventory of our passage this morning. See, Paul is sure of the Philippians' authentic gospel participation. And he's sure of that because of their participation in difficulties. They didn't abandon him while he was in prison, and therefore their dedication to the gospel must be real. In fact, in our passage this morning, uh, we just noticed that he brings up their gospel participation twice in these verses 3 through 11. In verse 5 and in verse 7, he talks about their participation in the confirmation and defense of the gospel. And so Paul wants to assure them of their coming reward at the return of Christ. And he twice mentions the day of Christ in verses 6 and 10. He assures them that Jesus' return means reward for them. It's as if they're sitting in the valley of their life. And Paul wants to draw their attention to the mountaintop. Paul wants to say, I know it feels like you're down here, but someday you'll be up there. And everything will be so much clearer. He's saying, I know it's hard right now, but it's going to be worth it when we reach the summit. He wants to zero in on the future reality of Jesus' return and their participation in it, the coming reward at the return of Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus started at his resurrection will find its completion in the day of eternity. And Paul is kind of tilting the head of these Philippian believers to see that what there are right now will someday be something vastly different because the death of Jesus has paid for sin. The resurrection has put away death. 
But the resurrection is swelling and reverberating throughout all eternity. It sounds, echoes through every generation and eventually unto every nation until of all God's church has, all of God's church has faith in Jesus Christ. And only then the work of God in redemption is complete. See, what Paul is doing is he's cluing us in and cluing these Philippians in to this idea that what is humbled will someday be exalted. What is going through hardship now will someday see the absence of hardship. See, God's genuine work in his people will necessarily reach completion. We might just stop and think. Imagine, like, I do this all the time, right? I have projects on my desk that never get completed. I have, you know, uh, this task that I need to do and this thing that some of you are all too familiar with the tasks that I haven't gotten completed. But we have these things that never get finished. And we have to ask ourselves, is God like the middle manager who never accomplishes and never finishes the tasks that he sets out to? No, of course not. No, our God is the inventor of the assembly line. He, he's the one who, who puts the product into the beginning and sees it through every phase, knowing that the outcome is inevitable, that it will go through all of the parts of the assembly line and be perfect and complete when it comes out on the other side. But in the meantime, it will be pressed and prodded. It will be poked and moved through all of those systems that are designed by the Creator to create the product in its fullness at the end. See, our God pushes us through this process by which we're refined and sanctified, by which we look at our low spot in life, our participation, defense of the gospel that sometimes comes with challenges and difficulties, and he draws our attention to this idea that someday all will be made right, all will be perfect again. And because we're mid-assembly line, you and I, we need partners to remind us that God completes his work. We need friends that clue us into the gospel-oriented purpose of God. I know sometimes we talk about this a lot, um, but I just want to take a moment to just talk about church membership and this idea of gospel participation or, or uh, gospel partnership. See, church membership is our way of kind of summarizing this partnership in the gospel. Church membership is a lot of things, but some things it's not. It's not a club for, for those who are in and out. It doesn't make you more spiritual than others around you. It doesn't change your standing with God in any tangible way. And throughout our history as a church, we've described church membership as locking arms with those who are like-minded about God's kingdom for the purpose of gospel work. By the way, we have a foundations class this afternoon, and as we're talking about gospel partnership, this might be a great application for you to jump in and talk about partnering with us in the gospel. We want to say that we're on the same page about who Jesus is and what he requires of us. And we just want to be on the same page about that. I would encourage you that if you haven't moved forward in membership, uh, this might be a great chance to kind of jump in and see what this is all about. See, some of us have a, uh, jumped into gospel partnership and membership. 
And I just want to kind of pause for a second and just reflect on that. We've, we've become members. We've, we've uh, kind of uh, locked arms. We've said the same things about Christ. But it's on us to really uh, press into this issue of gospel-oriented friendship. It's, it's not just showing up on Sundays and talking about the weather and occasionally going to small group. What we're talking about is an orientation to how I can serve my brothers and sisters at Gospel Community Church. It's saying, I want to encourage others all the more as we see the day approaching. I want to help them be uh, lifted up in the gospel purpose so that they can be strengthened and pushed forward into good deeds that honor Christ. There's another category of people here who've attended here for a while but haven't stepped into intentional membership with, with gospel. I remember when we first planted, I had this really idealistic notion that everybody here was going to fall into one of two categories. There was going to be visitors, and there was going to be members. And so, like, if you were a visitor, I was going to be gracious. I was going to let you attend one or two weeks, and then we were going to push you into membership, right? And I've since come to realize that many of us have reasons. We have life circumstances and situations that, that slow down that process. So I want you to hear me say, we're not pushing you. We're inviting you. I know that some of you have spouses that don't attend with you. Some of us have theological questions that need to be answered. Some of us have uh, questions about joining any group. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to join Sam's Club. I've got to be honest, right? And those are all legitimate hang-ups. It's okay for you to work through those things at your time. But I want to make sure that the goal is gospel participation and gospel partnership somewhere. If not here, then where? See, some of us have been here for years and still haven't stepped into a long-term commitment to the church. And I'm not picking on you. I'm not trying to, to call you out. What I'm saying is, do we have a plan for gospel partnerships? Because we need them. If I were to give an analogy, let's just say that a friend invited us over to build a deck he invited us over, and you were invited, and I was invited, and you came, and you brought uh, tools. And I was trying to think of tools that you would need to build a deck, and that's beyond my skill level. But I came, and I brought a lawn chair and a cooler. And I sat, and I watched you build the deck. And I said, man, isn't it great we're building this deck? See, I'm present for the work, but I'm not a meaningful participant in it. Gospel partnership requires that, that we be on the same page about who Jesus is and what he wants to accomplish in this world. See, Paul's writing a letter to these people that, that were with him in the work. They were sawing and hammering and doing other deck building things together in the gospel. The best way we have these meaningful discussions that, that I can think of as a pastor is to have a discussion about membership. That is, we expect a certain understanding of who Jesus is and His work. We anticipate an activity in your life whereby you would invite others to participate in His kingdom work, where, where you would engage in rhythms of encouraging fellow believers from Gospel Community Church. See, here's the truth this morning. No matter where you are in the states of membership, you've been a member for five years at Gospel Community, you haven't stepped into membership, you're brand new this week, whatever it might be, we need 
gospel partners. Can I just say this? Church acquaintances aren't enough. The Christian believers that you know at the workplace are great, but you're not committed to them, and they're not committed to you. So I just want to lay out what a partner in the gospel is from our passage this morning. See, a partner in the gospel affirms God's work in us. He he sees the change that we undergo because of of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And they speak words of encouragement. They say, you used to do this, but now I see this change in behavior. And that can only be explained by the resurrection of Jesus. See, a gospel partner is someone who prays for our continued or God's continued work in us. They, they actually act, actively advocate before the throne of God that you would continue to take on the character of Christ. A gospel partner is one who challenges us to grow. They, they might actually see some behaviors that are out of line with our, our, our proclamation of the gospel, and they would say, hey, brother, sister, this, this doesn't fit. Maybe we can work on this. How can I help you overcome uh, the sin? A gospel partner is one who moves us to look for Christ's return. Who draws our eyes to the end of history when Jesus will finally establish his kingdom on the earth. And I ask you, do you have friends like this? Even deeper, do you have friends like this here? And finally, are you a friend like this? This is what Paul lays out with such clarity, right? And I, I thank God for your, your partnership in the gospel, for your partici- participation, for your confirmation and defense of the gospel. And I pray that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you can be found pure and blameless and and fruitful at Christ's return and so that Christ would be glorified and the Father would be glorified. Is that how you pray? Is that how you speak? I'll be honest, I fall so short of Paul's example here. My prayers are so often half-hearted and weak. I wonder if we might take up the mantle of genuine prayer, genuine partnership in the gospel. In fact, I'm going to pray for that this morning. As we conclude our time here together, I want to pray that God makes us good friends. I love what Gospel Community Church has in terms of its sense of community, its love for one another. And I think we can take that next step in growth as we call each other to this gospel-rooted friendship. I want to pray that Christ honors his name here as we create those friendships. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray and plead with you now that you would establish friendships like these in our midst. Lord, give us a sense of our partnership together for purpose of your kingdom and establishing your kingdom for your glory. Allow us to be those who encourage one another with the growth that we've seen in them. Allow us to be those who who pray for continued growth. Allow us to be those who, who remind one another of your purpose in the world.
and the establishment of your kingdom and your graciousness in the death and resurrection of Christ. I pray that you would do this in our midst. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.